Well, you can um, turn over to the book of Esther. You should have a, a pew Bible in front of your seat if you don't happen to have one handy. Um, we've been camping out in Esther for the last few weeks, and we're going to continue that on uh, this morning. I was reading um, this to my girls. I, I've got three children, but my two older uh, children are girls, six and four, last night, reading through the book of Esther in preparation for today's text. And um, as I was reading through, I always like to ask them, you know, what are some observations? What are some insights that you, you can see? And what's going on? It's a very fascinating story. Um, unlike some narratives, uh, can, it's hard for kids to hold their attention, but Esther's a fascinating one. And of course, it has a queen and a princess, and my girls love those. So, uh, although I, I do not, I try not to embellish too much. Uh, so as we're, as we're reading through, I, I asked my oldest, Audrey, um, who's a very perceptive child, and I said, so what are, what are some things that you see in, in this text that, that you just stick out to you? And I thought she was going to point out, you know, the dastardly Haman or uh, the beautiful Queen Esther or, or something like that. But what she told me was very striking when she said, well, Dad, this story is all about God. And I said, well, honey, you just wrote my sermon. <laughs> No, uh, just kidding about that. Don't worry. Uh, no, but, but she's right. Uh, out of the mouth of babes, right? Uh, what a beautiful uh, picture. I, I think it's been something that has been uh, something I've quite enjoyed over the last several weeks is just being someone where you are listening to my brothers preach. Uh, I've gone through many book studies before, but there's something particularly striking about what we've been going through in Esther because, you know, very common knowledge to most of us that are, are grown up in church, uh, the mention of God is absent, I think as Jared pointed out in one of his sermons, the word prayer isn't even brought up. When Esther is fasting, they don't even mention prayer. So what's up with that? Where's the spirituality? Where's, where's, where's the obvious point to all of this? Um, so much so that many people throughout history, even Martin Luther, didn't get the point of Esther. Well, this is kind of a, a book about you know, ethnic origins that has nothing to do with God. Well, Actually, what I've been so delighted in and my personal preparation for this week, but even over the last several weeks, is I am more and more convinced that's just not true. Uh, not that I had to be convinced too much, but the obviousness of God has been so striking to me. The obviousness of God. And we talk about His providence, and sometimes I think that we walk around thinking that providence is something that God just kind of throws on the side and runs in the background. But the truth is, it's His active and working hand in the midst of human agency and events. And I think that's what we're going to see this morning. Now, uh, obviously, for those of us who've been here for several weeks, uh, this is quite the middle of the book. In fact, this is kind of the climax of the story, if you will, where we see a turning of, of events and things start uh, uh, kind of switching for our characters a little bit. But if you've just joined us, I think it might be helpful to get a bit of a recap. Now, some people don't like episode recaps. I do, and I'm preaching, so we're going to do it. Okay, I think it would be helpful. And there's some things that even, honestly, in my study, this has been so helpful uh, to take into account. Because Esther is a book that we're very familiar with. And because of its, um, uh, uh, you know, it's a book full of action. There have been many movies and, and different things made of it. So I don't want us to, to lurch into Hollywood version of Esther. I want us to look into the biblical account. So there's a couple things that I, I want to point out. You can go to Esther 1, if you will, and you can kind of track with me. Uh, as we recap, that brings us into the introduction of chapter 6 and 7 that we're going to be looking at today. And the first thing I want to point out are the five major players that we see throughout this book. Now, uh, there are more than five, but there are five key ones. 
Four of them are very visible. We see their dialogue, we see their action, we see their thoughts, we see their plotting. But the most important character, the one we've already hinted at, is the one that all of this is about, and that's God. So what about Ahasuerus, or as history has known him as Xerxes? What about him? I've seen some depictions of this book in film where it makes um, Ahasuerus kind of like a neutral character. He's not all good. Uh, I mean, obviously he's going to decree to kill the Jewish people, so he's definitely not good. But there are signs that he may be somewhat of a good guy. I think it's been demonstrated already, but I'll definitely point out today, he's not a good guy. He is foolish and angry. He's arrogant and powerful. He uses people like you would a pawn in a game. Um, and that's, that's very much who he is. God uses his foolishness, no doubt, but it's very much who he is. Haman, of course, the obvious antagonist to our, our um, storyline, is a scheming, fearful hate, hater. He hates the Jewish people. He comes from a background of people that do and were enemies of God. Then on the flip side of that, you see Mordecai and Esther, uh, kind of the foil characters, if you will, to uh, Ahasuerus and Haman. Mordecai is humble, concerned about his people very clearly as he mourns over the, the, the um, announcement of the edict. He is bold. He's principled. He's even dutiful. He, he stops uh, an assassination of the king early on in the book. Uh, interestingly enough, about 10 years after the events of Esther, Ahasuerus is assassinated anyway. But he stops it at this, at this point in this juncture. And Esther, of course, beautiful, charming. What I'm going to point out today, courageous and cunning, especially in her petition to the king that doesn't get a lot of uh, uh, attention in dramas, but actually I think displays her winsomeness and her wisdom even more than anything else. But back to the key figure of our story, God. God has proven himself already at this point to be sovereign, and providential over human affairs. He's the preserver and protector of the Jewish people. Uh, one thing that I think was really interesting, just an observation as I was reacquainting myself with this book, do you, did you realize that in every chapter of this book, except for chapter 1, the Jewish people are mentioned? Whether it's Mordecai the Jew, or whether it's the Jewish people scattered across the empire, they're mentioned. And you have to know and, and I'll, be, I'll be emphasizing this throughout my sermon, that when you hear the Jewish people, you need to think sovereign God. That's what you need to think. And why do we need to think that way? Because they are His special possession. So in many ways, God's all over the book of Esther, if we look at it with the right lens. Um, he worked through human foolishness, like I mentioned with Ahasuerus and Haman, um, and utilize human courage through Mordecai and Esther and, and using human agency. So, interesting collection of characters here, but don't want to miss out on the most important, the one unseen but the most visible at the same time, God. Now, what about the historical backdrop? And this is very, very important. It provides context for us. This is not just any empire. Now, I, there have been countless empires in the history of the world. My, my children are going through uh, we just started classical conversations this year, homeschooling, and I'm sure they're going to learn every single one of those empires. But right now, they don't know very many, and I can't name more than a few. But this is one of the greats. In fact, if you go to Daniel chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but Nebuchadnezzar has a very odd dream about a statue that's made up of different parts, different materials, gold and silver and iron. And these represent the five great uh, kingdoms, empires of the world. 
Uh, and the top of that statue is the golden head of Babylon, which preceded the Persian Empire. And then where we are right now in the events of this story is the strength, the mighty strength of the Persian Empire, the chest and the arms of silver that's only, only less in power than the Babylonians were. And then following them would be the Greek Empire with Alexander the Great, and then finally the Roman Empire as it kind of closes out that great um, um, you know, picture of, the, of world strength. Uh, now, this is a very vast empire, as chapter 1 notes, from current-day India all the way to Ethiopia. That's a large swath of land. And in between chapters 1 and 2, history tells us that Ahasuerus is actually preparing for military conquest of the Mediterranean. So the, the, the lust for power and expanding um, empire is, is not quenched yet in his mind. Uh, now, we see a particular people throughout this empire. Well, many, many peoples, because the edict goes out and has to be translated in different languages for different people. But the common thread is there are Jews in all of these provinces. What's up with that? Are they just Jews in exile, or is there something else going on here? Well, yes and no. They were exiled. The Jewish people, while God's special possession, uh, were often, and uh, where I'm from, they would say, honorary people. Uh, they, 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 uh, they, they pushed back against God. They worshiped foreign idols, and there is a price to pay for that. God judged them. The Babylonians took them into captivity. And it says in the early chapters of, of Esther uh, that uh, Mordecai's ancestors were the ones that were actually brought out of exile. So, so Mordecai and his father and father's father probably most likely grew up in the Persian Empire as their culture. They don't necessarily view themselves socially, economically, or culturally different from the people around them. Now, they are different in the most important ways, but in many ways they're not. Uh, the predecessors to uh, Ahasuerus, many scholars have said, were actually very, very tolerant people. The Persian emperors were usually religiously tolerant. Uh, many of them actually allowed the Jewish people to go back into their homeland. And these Jews, for one reason or another, have decided to stay, whether it's the fact that they've just grown up here and this is the land of their father and their father's father. Uh, they've not elected to go back to Israel. And so this is their home, which makes, in many ways, Ahasuerus' edict even more befuddling. If I was an emperor and king, the last thing I would want to do is weaken myself by killing out half my population. But in Hasaris's foolishness and drunkenness, he's allowed himself to do just that. These are not necessarily foreign entities within a body. They're part of the Persian empire as much as the, the ethnic Persians or any other people group that make up the empire. So those living in Susa, like everywhere else, were part of the society. They were embedded into it. And the, the, the final kind of historical backdrop that is going to be very, very important here, especially in these two chapters, is that this is not just a conflict between two men. Okay? As, 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 as nasty and scheming as Haman is, Haman is not just Haman. Haman is a Malachite. Haman comes from a history of people who vehemently hated the Jewish people and, likewise, vehemently hated God. They were God-haters. And Mordecai represents everything that Mordecai despises. We're going to look at actual action between two actual people. But what I want you to see beyond this and what I want you to highlight is there is a much greater, and I would even argue more real, spiritual battle that's being displayed right in front of us as we see the conflict between these two men. Now, my last point in my recap, and I promise we'll move forward, is the timeline. This is something I've always taken for granted. Again, 
you have movie depictions in your mind, or we're reading chapter by chapter, and it looks like everything just kind of clicks along, but that's not how the book is laid out. And when we open up the book, and, and you'll notice this in Esther 1 3, you can take a look at there if you'd like. It opens in the third year of the king's reign. Now, obviously, what has been told to us already, we have 180 days of feasting here. There's a lot of feasting in, in Esther. And there's golden goblets, and there's all this wealth. What's going on here? Well, scholars believe that, and this is actually Persian custom, that this great feast wasn't just because he thought, let's have a, let's have a party. This is in preparation for military campaign against Greece. Um, and you'll even notice this, the military is present here. It's all very intentional. They're, 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 they're kind of boosting their morale before they go and attack uh, the Greek states uh, to their west. Now, the, 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 what really happened, and we don't see here in Esther, is that when Hasserus and the Medo-Persian Empire go against Greece, they get themselves in a big pickle. They lose the battle uh, uh, greatly, and he is pushed back into the east never to venture west again. And eventually, years later, uh, Alexander the Great rises to power and comes against the Persian Empire for retaliation and utterly decimates them. And that begins the new reign of the new great world empire, and that is the Greek Empire. And that gives way to the Roman Empire. So all this is going on in the background of the book. In fact, between, between chapter 1 and just chapter 2, we have four years that pass. It's not just a couple days or a verse to verse. We have four years. It makes sense if he's gone to war. That's what's gone on. So by the time that Esther enters Ahasuerus' chamber, four years have passed since the, episode, the events of episode one or chapter 1. Now, when we look into uh, moving forward into chapter 3, we have another four years that pass. Now, this is really important because by the time that Esther approaches the king in that great throne room scene, it, it would be easy for us to go, well, she was just crowned. She was announced queen. It's been a couple days. She kind of got comfortable. We have a few days of fasting, and we're going to go do this thing. No, she had been queen for four years. We're now eight years into the book by the time we get into chapter three alone. So a lot of time has passed. Uh, but Things change quite a bit when we enter chapter 5 through what we're going to be covering today into the middle of chapter 8. All of those events cover two days. Two days. And what I'm, what I'm going to suggest to you all this morning when we see especially uh, Haman as a model for uh, haughtiness and pride and arrogance against God, quick is his ascendance and quick is his fall. And this is the story of the wicked. Now, again, in God's timing, but here we get this in real time. Two days. Day one, Esther's dramatic royal confrontation at her first banquet. Haman building the gallows for Mordecai in which to hang him. And then at one sleepless night for the king. Day two, Haman goes into the king ready to, to have Mordecai killed. He ends up having to honor Mordecai in this parade. A doom is spoken over Haman. And eventually he's executed. It's a pretty busy couple of days. And we're going to cover some of those uh, momentarily. Now, I believe a key ingredient of any compelling story includes the building up of action that leads to a distinct and decisive turning point. And we're going to see that here in chapter 6 and 7. Over the last few weeks, we've been seeing this build up. We've been seeing the plotting of Haman, the destruction of the Jews at hand. This is basically a legalized genocide of a whole race of people. It's not new to history, unfortunately, even since that time. 
And all this has been leading up to this point in time where it looks like with any observer looking from the outside that it's game over for God's people. Last week, Pastor Tyler ended his sermon on a cliffhanger with Haman busily, and I would add happily, constructing an instrument of torture and death for his mortal enemy. It's a great way to end an episode, right? But as we prepare to examine closely these two chapters, I think it'll be helpful to provide a lens by which to better understand all of these events, because there are many. Many biblical commentators view Esther 6 and 7 through Haman's humiliation and downfall, and especially as it's juxtaposed sharply with Mordecai and Esther's honor and vindication. While the various interactions between Ahasuerus, Haman, Esther, and Mordecai is important, and of course the reversal of fortune between these two men is very important, um, I believe that the central figure, as I've already mentioned, and focus of these texts is God. Haman and Mordecai were living historical people. Their actions, both worthy and unworthy, occupied actual time and space. As such, we as readers and interpreters of Scripture should be careful not to allegorize these two men. With that being said, as certain as the struggles between these two flesh and blood men were, there is an even more certain and actual reality that we should heed this morning. The prideful rise of Haman, along with the ultimate humiliation and destruction of of him and and his household, tell us more about the character of God than it does Haman. Haman and his ancestors were pagans who hated the Jews. They even attacked and killed the Jews as they were fleeing from Egyptian captivity. And in turn, God had ordered Saul to utterly decimate them. You don't have to turn there, but make a note in 1 Samuel 15, God spoke to the prophet Samuel, and God said this, I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now, go and attack the Amalekites, and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, children and infants, oxen and sheep, even camels and donkeys. Now, we know that Saul did not do this and lost the kingdom for it. This is a difficult passage, there's no doubt, especially as we consider the character of God that we all know and cherish. Yet, Lest we be tempted to believe that God, not the Amalekites, is the barbarian here, keep in mind two important things. One, that God's wrath against wickedness is always justified and deserved. And two, that the same torrential wrath that should have been applied to us was graciously laid upon our Savior, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Don't lose sight of that. Now, generations later, from the events of 1 Samuel 15... In a distant land, not a distant galaxy, but a distant land, far away, the descendants of these wicked and odious people maintained the same hatred for the Jews. Esther 3.6, I want you to take a look at there. Esther 3.6 speaks of the root of Haman's hatred for Mordecai. and says this, And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, Haman decided not to do away with Mordecai alone. He set out to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. So Haman wasn't just miffed at Mordecai for not bowing down to him or smiling when he should have smiled or because he just didn't like his personality. No, Haman vehemently hated the Jews and the God who they represented. Their very, their, their very existence pointed to the God of the universe. And Haman hated this. 
So I want to make it very clear, the wickedness of Haman wasn't just because he was a bad guy, he was a God-hater. And that's very important to keep in mind. Now, what does any of this have to do with the struggle between Mordecai and Haman and Esther 6 and 7? Why should we see Haman's hatred for Jews as being so utterly vile? What, if anything, does Haman's plan for the destruction of the Jews have to do with God's glory? Well, the question to, the questions um, can be answered, the, all these questions can be answered the same way. To hate and revile God's people is to necessarily hate and revile God. I'll say it again. To hate and revile God's people is to necessarily hate and revile God. This is the primary lens by which to best understand all of the book of Esther, and especially 6 and 7. Since God called Abraham, the Jewish people were considered his special possession because he chose and loved them, and because their very existence and, frankly, their survival was a signal of God's goodness, mercy, power, and sovereignty. Was this because the Jews were lovely, grateful, and just very generous people to him? No, not at all. In fact, at multiple occasions after the Exodus, the people griped and complained. They worshipped idols, so they made them out of the gold that they took from Egypt. God was prepared to wipe them all away himself. So much for the edict of Haman. God was going to do it himself. In Numbers 13, Moses entreats the Lord for mercy on his rebellious, rebellious people. Now, for time's sake, I won't read through it, but I would greatly encourage you to read it. It's fascinating. Now, you would suppose, or what, I mean, I ask you this, what do you suppose is the repeated concern or refrain in Moses' entreatment of God? Was it that the people deserve to be saved? Maybe Moses is saying, their sin's not as bad as you're making out to be, Lord. Was it that God was just being a bully? No, none of those things. What we see as the singular refrain, the singular concern in Moses' request, it was for God's holy reputation above all else. The destruction of the Jews would have given pagan peoples occasion to mock and defame God's righteous and almighty name. God is the promise keeper. Since Genesis, he has promised to keep and bless those who belong to him and those that would treat his people with contempt, he would bring contempt upon them. As we now turn our attention to the text, I don't want us to miss uh, that God has remained faithful to his promise that his promise will remain intact, and that keeping this promise has as its central focus the integrity and exaltation of God's name and reputation. And this essentially is my outline. I've got two points, so you can be thankful for that. I didn't mention how many subpoints I have, so don't get too excited about that. My first point is this, and this is the majority of chapter 6. God's name will not be mocked. God's name will not be mocked. And the second point is this, and this is a majority of chapter 7. God's reputation will be preserved. God's name will not be mocked, and God's reputation will be preserved. So, the time has finally come for us to get into the episode. I thought you, you thought it would never come. It's the longest recap in history. So, let's get into it. Um, we'll start in ver- uh, uh, Esther 6, and we'll read verses 1 through the first half of verse 6. That night, sleep escaped the king, so he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, when they planned to assassinate King Hasserus. The king inquired, what honor and special recognition 
have been given to Mordecai for this act. The king's personal attendants replied, well, nothing's been done for him. The king asked, who is in the court? Now, Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's attendants answered him, Haman is there standing in the court. Have him entered, the king ordered. Haman entered, and the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Now, I'm going to stop there because I love Haman's answer. We're going to get there in a second, so just hold on. (laughs) It's priceless. But the opening of chapter 6 begins with a seemingly common sequence of events. Now, we would look at some of these things and think they're kind of odd because culturally they're foreign to us. But a vast majority of what's going on here is quite normal for the Persian context. But what I want us to see through all of these chapters, but even this section specifically, is that God has weaved throughout each of these things his guiding and active hand in the midst of human agency. And again, I want to emphasize It's not just the guiding hand of God, it's the active hand of God. He is working actively. Isaiah 14, 27 states this, The Lord of hosts himself has planned it, therefore who can stand in its way? It is the hand that is outstretched who can turn it back. Now, looking at that first, even the first phrase, I have to pause and think about what's going on here. What's so unique about a night where sleep has escaped you. I mean, I'm sure we could all say at one time or another, we've had a sleepless night. Maybe there's been something on our mind. We've had some troubles or worries. Nothing particularly supernatural or astounding about that fact. And yet, the fact that the king, basically of the world at this point, had a sleepless night is very curious. What does Ahasuerus have to worry about or think about? He could have total people groups destroyed at, the, at a flick of a, a wrist. And yet, God has taken away his rest. God has taken away his sleep so that he's awake. At this exact time in which in the morning, Haman is coming. What I think about when I see this is not just a sleepless man. I see a man who needs sleep, like you and I. We're made of flesh and bone. We're weak. Strange things happen when you don't sleep for days. We're made for sleep. But guess who never sleeps or rests? Psalm 121.4 states this, Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. He's always watching. And even here, in this seemingly innocent and run-by little fact here at the very beginning of chapter 6, God is intentionally and actively working to direct Ahasuerus' attention to Mordecai. It's astounding. And so, what does he do? He wants to get back to sleep, so he orders the, the book recording daily events. Even the name makes me a little sleepy. I've read a lot of boring things. <laughs> um, but this is, again, this is, not a, this is not a strange thing. We read this and we go, that's kind of odd, but actually very, very common. There were people, their entire jobs were just to sit by the king in the court and to copy down every single thing that happened. Man, I hope they had a good pension. (laughs) Uh, That's all they did. And so all these things were meticulously kept for records and archives. And so it was very common for Persian kings to make use of these as reference point. But, again, but God, of all the scrolls and all the materials and all the different books of records here that could have been pulled and brought to him by the attendants, it just so happened to be about our good friend Mordecai. Now, if you remember my important recap, 
that you maybe didn't appreciate, but you're going to appreciate right now. When we read this book, we think, well, Mordecai just did all that a few, few verses ago. It's been four years since Mordecai uh, stopped the assassination attempt. Four years. I can barely remember what happened last week. <laughs> and yet God, waking the king up in the middle of the night when he should have been sleeping, pulling the right book from the right shelf with the right page, right to the right man who happened to be the adoptive father of his wife. I guess that's just coincidence, right? No, it's not. And so he opens the book. Now, I think this is so amazing. Uh, you know, we, we emphasize, and of course it's written there, Mordecai's uh, entreaty to Esther to, to get the courage to go see the king the first time, and maybe for such a time as this. Man, I read this and go, for such a time as this. It's all over the book of Esther. And so we see him open it up, and he asks these questions about honoring. And again, this is very common. God's working his supernatural uh, uh, work in very common, mundane things. It was very common for Persian kings to honor people like this, even in the grandiose ways that we'll see momentarily with the parade and the, the garments. But it's, so it's according to custom. But he asks, what I think is always odd when I was reading through this, uh, he says, what happened, what's, what's been done for Mordecai? The attendants say, well, nothing. In verse 4, he says, who was in the court? Well, that's kind of, what's that about? What's going on there? Well, again, this is where the, the, the context is very helpful. In Near Eastern cultures, it got hot in the afternoon, so a lot of court business was done early in the morning. It was very common, so we can gather from this, the night is ending, we're in the early morning hours, and it was very common for advisors and important people of the court to be there to, do, to conduct the court's business at that time. Well, here comes Haman, and his order of business is the destruction of his enemy. But that's not God's business, is it? No, it's not. God has different plans. And so he calls Haman up and asks this question. Now, what we've seen in just these few verses, a lot's going on, a lot of intrigue. It's very fascinating. But it's like a quick domino effect that's a precursor to the great fall that Haman's about to have. God removes sleep. He directs the attendants. He grants favor to Mordecai. And then he supplants Haman's plans. The way of the wicked will not prosper, will it? It doesn't matter what Haman does, his doom is already ensured. But we're not there yet. Let's, let's, let's look at the next section that highlights Haman's haughtiness and pride. So, uh, I just love this answer, okay? So the king says, what should be done, this is the, the end of, uh, middle of verse 6, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? And Haman thought to himself, who is it that the king would want to honor more than me? <laughs> Maybe you know people like that. If so, just don't share it, especially if they're around. What should be done for the man the king wants? What should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Well, who would he want to honor more than me? And he thought that to himself, of course. And Haman told the king, "Oh, got a great plan for the man the king wants to honor. Have him bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn, and a, and a horse that the king himself has ridden, which is a royal crown on its head." Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor and parade him on the horse through the city square and call out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. And we'll stop there. So there really is no hiding Haman's nature. If we didn't already see it through his plans, the inside of the scriptures give us insight into his very heart, what his thinking is. We're made privy to his personal thoughts, and we could easily say this is a very prime example of just a complete lack of self-awareness, but it's much more than that. 
He, this is a, a striking picture of the spiritual disease that is selfishness. I never understood why people never found it adequate to say, well, that's just selfishness, like it was just something that was not as bad. Selfishness is dire. It's devastating in its impact. I think Haman demonstrates what selfishness really looks like here. So what does, what do, what does Haman's thoughts reveal about his heart? Uh, kind of putting your, your finger right here, flip over to Proverbs chapter 6, just briefly, just a couple books over. Proverbs chapter 6. And I think we're going to get an actual depiction of the type of man that Haman really is. Okay? Esther, I'm sorry, um, Proverbs 6, verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes around speaking dishonestly, winking his eyes, signaling with his feet, and gesturing with his fingers. He always plots evil with perversity in his heart. He stirs up trouble. Therefore, calamity will strike him suddenly. He will be shattered instantly, beyond recovery. The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. Wow. Got a pretty accurate depiction of Haman, don't we? And that's exactly what he is. A worthless man, a wicked man, selfishly ambitious, vain. Everything about Haman's desires are not just interesting facts that we should run by and go, well, that's just pretty nasty. Everything that Haman desires is an affront to the holy living God. Everything he desires... It's not just a personal, oh, that's, that's preferentially, that's not where I would desire. His desires are an affront to the holy living God. 1 John 2, 15-17, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life are not from the Father, they're from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. You see the spiritual battle here. We don't not like Haman because he's just a bad guy. We despise Haman because he's a wicked, God-hating man. And God's going to deal with him shortly. But look at something else in this section too. It's very interesting. Look at all the focus on external adornment. This, this book has many themes. So you have the garments here that are thrown on him, the horse with its decorations, and of course, Haman saying all these things as recommendations to the king because he expects to be awarded with such beautiful adornments. I think it also is an interesting glimpse into Haman's heart too. You will always find that people who are natural, the natural, uh, they're not of God, maybe they're very worldly, they have a huge emphasis on beauty, on external beauty, more importantly, uh, uh, honor, prestige, Wealth, the things of the external. But what does God value? God values the heart. He values the state of the inner man. That's not Haman here. Frankly, it's not Ahasuerus either. They both love their golden goblets, their free-flowing wine, and beautiful women. They're worldly as worldly can be. 
And all of this, I, again, I, wanna, I, I just can't emphasize it enough. It's a mockery of God. You have to understand there's nothing neutral in this world. Your desires, my desires, your thoughts, my thoughts, all say something about how we view God. And it's very evident here if we look at it rightly. Now, let's get to another really funny part in this narrative. Haman's reaction to the king's answer. I, just, I, some, I was just like, I wish I could see his face, how deflated he was in this moment. He's, so he says all these great things, and so verse 10, Esther 6.10, the king told Haman, hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew, <laughs> who was sitting at the king's gate, and don't leave out anything that you have suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse, he clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, calling out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home, mournful and with his head covered. Uh, and again, I want to point out, it's just amazing, only God can do this. God uses a foolish person like Ahasuerus to accomplish this. Don't forget, Ahasuerus is the one saying, I want you to go honor Mordecai the Jew. And also, I approve for his entire people to be eradicated in a few months. That's what's going on right now. It's, just, it's kind of astounding. And he is aware, he says it right there, Mordecai the Jew in verse 10. He knows. He knows. I want you to honor this king. I'm, I'm gonna, so the double-mindedness of this man, I'm going to honor this guy and I'm going to kill his people. And, you know, he's included in that, by the way, in this legal gen genocide in a few months. Again, God uses foolishness for his divine purposes. Nothing can thwart God's plans. I think you can be encouraged by that, by the way. Uh, Haman is forced to honor his mortal enemy here. Now, it says that there's a little parade. I, uh, you know, when I used to think about this, I'm from a very small town. I think it would take a total of, I don't know, two minutes to circle my town square. This is Susa. Okay, This is a massive city. The Winter Palace is located here for the emperor. It's a huge fortress. This wasn't like a coffee break. Okay, This wasn't Haman saying a couple times, yay, yay, honor the guy here. That was not going on. This is a huge um, um, parade. Again, these things were very common. This was not a one-time deal in Persian history. There are many accounts historically of this happening, and it was a grand gesture. In fact, um, in many instances, we don't know in this one particularly, but the person honored got to keep everything that, that he, he received. I mean, the emperor had new clothes for everything, so he got to keep the garments. It was a, it was a huge mark of honor. And Haman had to spend all day honoring a guy that he'd been planning all night to kill. Yep, it's ironic, but it's sweet justice from the Lord, I'll tell you. Now, the last point here, I kept with uh, my first point uh, uh, in this section because I think it's really fascinating. And I would say there's any verse that really brought all this home, it's really verse 13 in chapter 6 for me. Uh, I could have labeled this Haman's doom predicted because it is, but I think more appropriately it's God's divine promise kept. Now look at verse 13. So he runs off home to mama. He's not adorned with all the beautiful things that he wanted to be adorned with. He has his head covered in shame. And he walks in, in verse 13, And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened. And his advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. Man, with family like that, who needs friends, right? <laughs> Ooh, I mean, this is a family reunion nobody wants to go to. Now, it's so interesting when you contrast this literally just a, few, you know, a day before. And again, this is the timeline and in the book. 
You go to the end of chapter 5, you go the day before, Zeresh and all these supposedly wise counselors are saying, this is going to be great. You go to the second banquet, you enjoy yourself, and while you're doing that, we're going to construct this gallows to kill your enemy. It's going to be awesome. Well, look what has changed in just a day, not even a full day. Again, the wickedness of men will not prosper. Now, what I think is interesting about this probably unintentional prophecy are two key things that are mentioned. And I think they're slightly different, so it's important for us to make note of them. One is that Haman will not overcome Mordecai. Haman will not overcome Mordecai, the Jew. And again, it's not because Mordecai is some sort of strong boss. It's because Mordecai is a Jew. Make it clear. And if he's a Jew, that means he belongs to God. Haman won't overcome Mordecai, and Haman will fall before Mordecai. So he won't overcome him, and indeed, he will fall before him. And I think this double emphasis focuses on God's sovereignty. There is none like him. There is none equal to him. And God's ultimate victory, no enemy will overcome God's kingdom. Or his church, by the way. So we see the ruthlessness and folly of this council, but the doom is predicted. His fate has already been sealed without him knowing it. So now we move into the second section. God's reputation will be preserved. His name will not be mocked by this wicked, foolish man. Whatever his plans are, it doesn't matter. God will not allow it. And now God's reputation will be preserved in his preservation of his people. It's beautiful. So look at verse 14 of chapter 6. It's kind of a transition. So while they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and they rushed Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared. The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. And once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life, this is my request. And spare my people, this is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. Now, things really pick up as we get into chapter 7. And again, everyone always focuses in the movies on Esther's big confrontation with the king in the throne room after the three days of fasting. But I really think that her boldness, her cunning, her winsomeness is no better emphasized or displayed than right here in how she made this petition before the king. Now, as you look at the opening of this, Haman's being rushed off to a banquet. If you're like me, I had to sit down. I kid you not. I had to sit down and write out, what banquet are we in now? I am so confused. There's a lot of banqueting and feasting going on here. Now, in my vast wisdom, I would have orchestrated things to where when Esther walked into that throne room and she and the scepter was extended to her, I would have made that request right there. I mean, boom. Look, I'm a Jew. You're going to kill me and all my people. Please don't do that. But that's not what Esther does. I always found it so interesting because he goes, she goes in and she says, her big request is, come to a banquet I have. Well, that's easy. There'll be free food and wine. Let's go. So they go, and then twice uh, the king says, ask whatever you want, and I will give you up to half the kingdom. And Esther just says, my only request is you come back to another banquet tomorrow. Esther, you're, you're kind of missing the, the opportunity. <laughs> you, may, you, know, you haven't been to him in a month. It may be two months. It's times, 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 
passing by pretty quickly. But God had a plan because guess what happened in between? The sleepless night. Guess what book the king read? Guess who he honored? The Lord has set all this up perfectly. Sometimes if you're like me, we try to get ahead of God a little bit. His timing's a little too slow. I don't think it's slow at all in here, do we? We see it as perfect. So he's made this promise. The king, the king said, ask whatever you want. I mean, that's pretty easy. Okay, you give me up to half the kingdom, and this should be an easy request. But look at how Esther crafts her delicate and wise response. And I think this is her petition. It's, it's so neat. The first thing I want to point out, actually, is what she didn't ask for. She wasn't like Haman in her request. She didn't ask for preferment for Mordecai. She didn't ask for more clothes. She didn't ask for favor or wealth or honors or more beauty treatments. I'm sure she's probably sick of those. No, she placed people over possessions. Ahasuerus doesn't know that. He doesn't understand that. That's new to him. And Haman definitely isn't like that. They're people users. But he, she wanted to protect her people over her possessions. That's one thing that's interesting to note it's not there. But her request is also very winsome and persuasive. Look, look, at this is not, every word's intentional in the scriptures. Look how she says in, in, verse, um, in verse 3. If it pleases the king, spare my life. This is my request. We'll stop right there. Why start off there? I think Esther knew exactly what she was doing. I don't think it was manipulation. I don't think it was some sort of, you know, uh, trying to twist things around. I think she understood quite well the king's affection for her. And she was leveraging that affection to open up the king's heart further to what she was really going to request, which was this. My desire is that you spare my people. Now, it also very important to note, as far as we know, this is the first time that Esther has revealed that she's a Jewess to her husband. Mordecai is, I mean, Ahasuerus has honored Mordecai, the Jew. The edict is still in place, folks. Again, this is... Not something you can just erase. In Persian law and custom, it has been said, it is done. And now he finds out his queen is of the same people that he has committed himself through his signet ring to utterly decimate and destroy through legal genocide. But she says this, and it's, it's risky. Esther wasn't guaranteed anything. Look at Vashti, the lesson of Vashti. She just didn't want to refuse, she didn't want to um, appear before her king and a bunch of his drunken buddies, and she got kicked out of her queenship. What do you think is going to happen here? Do you think there's no risk? And yet Esther approaches him with boldness, with winsomeness and clarity, but with boldness to ask this on behalf of her people. And to, to, to top it all off, that doesn't end the petition. She then goes on to remind her husband of the edict and its implications. He's kind of a forgetful guy, this Ahasuerus. You know, he just thinks about what he wants to think about. But interestingly enough, when you see this language in this chapter, it's almost a word-for-word verbatim of chapter 3, verse 13. She recounts all the details of the edict and reminds him of what will occur. Let's move forward. In verse 5, the king speaks up and says, Who is this? And where is the one who would devise such a scheme? It's an ironic question. We'll get there in a moment. And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is the evil Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. 
Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining, and the king exclaimed, Would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Again, irony abounds throughout this entire narrative. The king's question is ironic. Who would devise such a scheme? Well, it might not have been the king directly, but the schemer is one you promoted to highest office in the land. The schemer is the one whom you gave your signet ring to enforce the edict. This foolish, foolish man. You are the one that has allowed this to happen. It was Haman's plan, but you are uh, his stooge. It's important to note, too, that Esther characterizes Haman as an evil man. He's an adversary. This language is very purposeful. We're, what we're meant to see here is the larger spiritual battle in place. The king's anger is burning against Haman. The king's been angry before. What's the big deal? Well, it's interesting, and I don't know all the inner workings here, but I, through the wise request of Esther, I think God using her boldness and courage, it's not an anger that we see in chapter 1 with Vashti. That anger was self-promoting, selfishly ambitious, had nothing to do with Vashti or anyone else but himself. But in this, the anger is for the purity and the physical safety of his wife and her people. That's not to say that the king had any altruistic uh, motivations, but it does speak to the power of of, of, uh, Esther's request and the working of God for his plan. So the king, who was once a pawn of Haman, is now being used of God to destroy that same evil schemer, that snake. Now, what I definitely don't want to miss here as we close up this section and, and work on ending the chapter is very, very quickly the schemes and the grand plans and all of the power of Haman is gone. He's terrified, he's trembling. He falls upon Esther's couch, begging for his life. Where did all the strength go? Where did all the power go? Where's all the pride and arrogance now? This depicts the world, my friends. We may be pressed in, we may be crushed, but the power of the world is gone in a fleeting moment. And that's, what, that's what's shown right here with Haman. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. In verse 9, we see that one of the king's units said, there's a gallows set up over here. What should we do about that? And the king says, hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows. He prepared for Mordecai, by the way, just the day before. Then the king's anger subsided. So Haman has sown wickedness, and he's reaped a whirlwind. As we've talked about already, should we be surprised? When one comes up against God's people... He is coming up against God. Warren Wearsby in his commentary on Esther states this best. Whether it's Pharaoh in Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, Haman in Persia, or Hitler in Germany, the enemy of the Jews is the enemy of the Almighty God, and they will not succeed. While we can sigh with relief that the enemy of the Jews and of God has been dealt with here, the worries of Esther and Mordecai are far from over. Remember, the edict is still in place. The chapter ends with an effect and only a few months left before the legal genocide of the entire people of God. So how will the story end? You have to come back next week to find out. Now, 
As we kind of close up our time and we enter into a brief moment of, of gospel reflection and, and uh, time of reflection, I want to, I want to point out three uh, uh, key, key, th- key takeaways from the sermon. And I want to give you some questions to consider. I always find this to be very helpful, so I like to include them at the end of my sermons. The first point is this. God's timing and purposes are perfect. God's timing and purposes are perfect. Now, I'm sure every one of us would sit there, and maybe even in your heart right now, you said, amen. And I affirm that. That's a good confession, Pastor Sam. But here's my question for you, my dear brothers and sisters. Do you find, your sta- do you find yourself in a state of impatience when it comes to God? Are you impatient about the circumstances that you find yourself in now? Are you currently resting on God in your period of waiting? Do you truly desire God's plans for your life over your own plans? A second truth is this, that God's people have nothing to fear from their enemies. Man, what a a relief, truly. What a sweet promise. Let me ask you this. Is your heart full of some sort of fear? Is there a fear of people in your life? circumstances? What do you find yourself fretting over? And are these things greater than God? And the last point, this is, this is the whole point, right? We say this on our website, and we say this, we say this a lot in our service. We exist to showcase the glory of God. God's utmost concern is for His glory, and that should be our concern too. God's concern is for His glory, And that should be our concern too. So here's something I want you to consider. Maybe even writing it down, putting it by your bedstand. I like this to be the first thought I have in the morning before my feet even hit the ground. Lord, how can I glorify you with my life today? God's timing is perfect. His people have nothing to fear. And his concern is for his glory.